Welcome to Exhumed, an underground podcast looking at arts and culture in the late 20th century. I'm James Wallace. On tonight's episode, I'm going to show you why, despite what the punks say, prog rock does not suck. Let's look at the roots of prog rock. Prog rock is a music genre that has been ridiculed by hipsters and critics. Album covers with images of gnomes and giants, long epic songs in several parts, and indulgent soloing by players were all considered points of mockery for the holier-than-thou music critic. This point of view was particularly preached by those who had came of age in the wake of punk rock. Punk rock, with its return to the roots of rock, was considered to be a purification of the indulgent sins of prog rock excess. With the rise of new wave and alternative music, prog rock was considered to be unhip. If one was to utter a love for Yes or Emerson, Lake, and Palmer around the spawn of Lou Reed, social ostracization would be inevitable. Album-long epics, an insult to the purity of three-chord rock simplicity. But despite what the punks say, Prog rock does not suck. Could it be over-the-top, pompous, and self-indulgent? Sure. But this genre of music exemplified a time when musicians could make use of their artistic freedom with little interference from the record companies. I came of age in the uber-commercial 80s and was subjected to the horrific top 40 of that time. When I discovered the music from the dinosaur period, say 1965 to 1975, which included a lot of prog rock, I was overjoyed by the richness of this music. I could get lost in the complexities of the track. This was music made for serious listening, not dancing or humming a melody to. Another interesting factor is that many punks had been, or in a lot of cases still were, prog rock fans. These two styles of music were a lot more adjacent than opposite. Fans of both genres were not casual listeners, but were people who were seriously interested in music. And it is no accident that the post-punk experimentation that occurred after the initial wave of punk had burned out took a lot of its cues from prog rock. So, as I said, despite what the punks say, prog rock does not suck. Well, the question is, what is prog rock? Prog rock can be looked at as rock or pop music that experiments with the conventions and incorporates elements from other genres of music, such as classical music, folk, jazz, and music from different cultures. This wide-ranging definition could include many different music groups, including those like the Velvet Underground, who many would not consider to be prog. I would argue they actually are, but more on that another time. But before we get to fantasy album covers and long songs that have numbered sections, we need to look at how rock and pop music changed over time. Rock and roll, back in the 50s, fused Chicago blues, rhythm and blues, country and western, and contemporary pop music into kind of one genre. When the original rock and roll stars like Chuck Berry, Bill Haley, Little Richard, Jerry Lewis, and Elvis Presley came to prominence, this music was very much a teenage phenomenon. Serious music aficionados at the time would listen to classical music or 
modern jazz, which was a style which had evolved over three decades and had become very serious and sophisticated in its musical form. Rock and roll, though, on the other hand, was music that was seen as a passing teenage phase. And by the early 60s, rock and roll had been tamed, with the rise of artists like Fabian, Ricky Nelson, and Dale Shannon. But there were two innovators doing interesting experiments in the studio. Now, unfortunately, both of these men would both end up being murderers. Phil Spector incorporated multiple instrumental orchestration into the recordings of vocal groups like the Ronettes. Their hit, Be My Baby, featured that intense orchestration that would become known as the Wall of Sound. British producer Joe Meek incorporated electronic sounds into songs like Telestar by the Tornadoes. The work of these producers would have a significant influence on two music groups from the 60s, the Beach Boys and the Beatles. Formed in 1961 and led by musical eccentric Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys created songs with complicated multiple harmonies that describe blissful teenage life in Southern California. They became massively successful until a challenge came across from across the pond in the form of Liverpool's The Beatles. Playing their own version of American rock and roll and rhythm and blues, they took America by storm by playing America's music back to an American audience. As a result, they became a massive cultural phenomenon. In fact, they started a whole British invasion of the New World as numerous bands ranging from Herman's Hermits to the Rolling Stones followed in their wake. But fame came at a price. The screaming by the girls in the audience became so overwhelming that the players were unable to hear themselves over the hysterical yelling. The Beatles became interested in including more experiments in the studios, like Phil Spector had. But they not only wanted a cleaner sound, they wanted to introduce more sophisticated songwriting because there was another artist that was influencing them. Bob Dylan became a dominant figure in the early 1960s folk music revival. While his lyrics initially dealt with social commentary and protest, over time they became more sophisticated and incorporated literary techniques such as stream of consciousness. When Dylan first met the Beatles in 1964, he pointed out that while he admired their musicianship, they were not saying anything lyrically. This meeting would have a tremendous influence on the band, and they would start writing songs with deeper, meaningful lyrics. They would also experiment with recording techniques and including a wider range of instrumentations. And this is seen on their albums Rubber Soul from 1965 and especially 1966's Revolver. Now, in the spirit of competition, the Beach Boys brought up the level of songwriting and studio experimentation on the 1966 masterpiece Pet Sounds and later with their single Good Vibrations, which was described at the time as almost being like a mini symphony. Dylan, in turn, would go electric, much to the anger and chagrin of the folk purists, on the albums Bring It All Back Home, 
Highway 61 Revisited, and Blonde on Blonde. Dylan had blurred the lines between highbrow folk music and simple pop rock music. Rock music was now to be taken seriously. Now, an appreciation for American blues music had begun to take hold in the early 60s in the UK, thanks to people like Cyril Davis and Alexis Corner. A real British blues scene emerged, and numerous bands playing that style became well-known, such as the Rolling Stones and the Animals. Many of the members of these groups became adept musicians, and some real virtuosos were getting a lot of attention. Most notably were three guitarists, who at different times had played in the same band. Eric Clapton had become a blues guitarist whose playing was indebted to the Three Kings, B.B., Albert, and Freddie. When his band, The Yardbirds, wanted to steer towards a more mainstream three-minute song direction, Clapton hooked up with John Mayle, one of the architects of the British blues scene, and became part of his band, The Blues Breakers. After one album, Clapton would work with two musicians that had been part of the jazz rhythm and blues band called the Graham Bond Experience. Graham Bond Organization, sorry. That would include drummer Ginger Baker and bassist vocalist Jack Bruce. Together, they formed Cream, a name given because they were considered to be the cream of the crop in terms of musicians in London at that time. With their debut album, Fresh Cream, in 1966, they created a blend of pop melodies with heavy electric blues that would give birth to a new genre that would be known simply as rock. Clapton's replacement in the Yardbirds was Jeff Beck. He brought a fierce guitar sound that incorporated fuzz, reverb, and feedback into the band's sound. The band experimented with Indian-style rhythms, African drumming, and even Gregorian chants. Beck would eventually be joined by another guitarist, Jimmy Page. Page has had success as a studio musician and had played on tracks such as I'm a Lover, Not a Fighter by The Kinks, I Can't Explain by The Who, and Marion Faithful's version of As Tears Go By. Page had a love of both American blues and British folk music, and incorporated them into his playing. He would eventually take over the direction of the Yardbirds after Beck's departure and steer them in another direction, but we will talk about that later. Just as there had been a rebirth of American folk music, there had also been a British folk music revival. The long traditions of music from the four countries of the British Isles were being played now by musicians such as Steve Benbow, Davy Graham, Bert Johns, John Redborn, and this group known as the Incredible Strings Band. These musicians started pulling from the musical traditions of other countries, such as India and Morocco. These artists were influential on rock artists, especially aforementioned Jimmy Page, but just as Dylan embraced electric instruments, 
British folk musicians would fuse their ideas with rock music, and bands like Pentangle and Fairport Convention started emerging in the late 60s. In 1965, an interesting music scene started developing in San Francisco and other U.S. cities. Inspired by the Merry Pranksters, Blues, Bob Dylan, the British Invasion Groups, the studio experiments of the Beatles and the Beach Boys, and jazz improvisation, a group of bands came on the scene in San Francisco that wished to really push the boundaries of pop music. Bands such as the Jefferson Airplane, Country Joe and the Fish, and the Grateful Dead would play electric-based jams over psychedelic light shows. Down in Los Angeles, bands like Love, The Birds, and The Doors also pushed the experimentation and incorporated the tones and textures of jazz musicians like John Coltrane. In 1966, the Chicago-based Paul Butterfield Blues Band recorded a 13-minute jam called East-West that fused blues with jazz improvisation and Indian raga. Live versions of the song would sometimes last an hour. It was clear that the traditional pop-rock format was being challenged by people who wanted to be taken seriously as artists. And barriers were pushed. And no one pushed the barriers more than Frank Zappa. Growing up, Zappa developed a love of both doo-wop music and the experimental French composer Edgar Varese. After both getting an opportunity to work as a recording engineer and composing his own symphonies, he joined an R&B band called The Soul Giants, in which he assumed leadership, and soon the Mothers of Invention were born. Their debut album, Freak Out, was an amalgamation of R&B, doo-wop music, blues, rock, sound collages, and composition. This extremely unique double album was a game changer that traversed genres and exemplified the counterculture of the 60s. Ironically, Zappa had a complete disdain for the emerging hippie culture. The album, though, was admired by one Paul McCartney. Zappa would go on to have a wide-ranging career and play multiple genres of music. He really deserves his own series, and I may do that at one point. An American guitar prodigy, Jimi Hendrix, arrived in London under the management of ex-Animals member Chaz Chandler in 1966. He was put in a group with bassist Noel Redding and drummer Mitch Mitchell. When he jammed on stage with the band Cream, guitarist Eric Clapton stood back in awe. Nobody had done this with a guitar. Not only was Hendrix a virtuoso, He could completely manipulate the fuzz and feedback coming out of the amp and form it into his own soundscapes. As Eric Burden stated, he took the blues to outer space. The 1967 debut album, Are You Experienced? by the Jimi Hendrix Experience, created the prototype for heavy psychedelic rock. He changed the game when it came to guitar playing and would influence not only the psychedelic bands but later heavy rock and progressive rock bands. Fed up with playing live, as they were not able to hear themselves over the frantic screams coming from the crowd, the Beatles played their final concert on August 29, 1966 at San Francisco's Candlestick Park. The band took three months off and then went back into the studio. 
The band wanted to continue the path of experimentation that they had done on Revolver. They wanted to stretch the possibilities of pop music and were interested in using the studio as an instrument and were fascinated by the tape manipulations of composers like Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, John Cage, and Lucio Berrio. The band created a conceptual album loosely based around a fictional Edwardian military band in the form of a rock band. This album's music, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, is infused with numerous genres, including rock and roll, avant-garde tape collages, music hall, big band, vaudeville, circus music, chamber music, and Indian music. From the opening of the album, with an orchestra tuning up, to the sustained single piano note, followed by the backwards recorded laughter and nonsense lyrics at the end of that album, the listener is taken on a sensory journey that evokes the depths of the imagination, but yet is still connected to a very whimsical English tradition. When the album was released on May 26, 1967, audiences were completely blown away. People would remember the exact place they were when they first heard it, and listeners would play it over and over again in order to capture the intricacies of the recording. The album was the soundtrack for the Summer of Love and inspired musicians everywhere to both use the studio as an instrument and incorporate other genres of music into their rock pop songs. The Beatles' musical vision had seriously evolved away from the simple songs they played earlier in their career. With the evolving experiments in recording, started by people like Phil Spector, the literary songwriting approach Dylan had brought to rock music, the increasing adept musicianship of players like Jimi Hendrix, and the willingness of bands like the Beatles to mix in other genres, rock music had progressed far away from where it was in its early days, and it was going to evolve a whole lot more. On the next episode, we're going to watch how psychedelic music becomes prog rock. Thank you. I'm James Wallace.